The Secrets of Star Trek is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, where we discuss the hidden layers and deeper meanings found in all the Star Trek TV series, movies, and more. And today we're discussing the Next Generation episode, The Bonding. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. And Father Corey sadly couldn't be with us this time, but he'll be back soon. Uh, Folks, I want to ask you to remember to share the podcast with your friends and help us grow this community of Trek fans and reach even more listeners. We that's the number one way this podcast grows. And I want to tell you about another show on the StarQuest Network you are sure to enjoy called The Secrets of Middle Earth. You can find that wherever fine podcasts are found or at sqpn.com slash Middle Earth. So this time we're talking about The Bonding. This is a third season episode of TNG, the fifth, I think, episode of that of that season. And Jimmy, could you give us a recap of what goes on in this episode? This week, Star Trek The Next Generation does Solaris. When archaeologist Marla Astor dies off screen on an away mission to a planet, the crew must deal with the aftermath of her death. In the middle of the aftermath is her 12-year-old son, Jeremy, who is now an orphan. Everyone is struggling to deal with Marla's death, and especially Jeremy, who is holding all his anger inside. But then, Marla Astor shows up again and says it was all a mistake, and she wants to take Jeremy down to the planet to make him happy. It's really creepy, and everyone but Jeremy recognizes that she's an alien imposter. It turns out that she's from a race of energy beings that watched the material inhabitants of the planet kill themselves in a genocidal war, and the energy beings have vowed not to let that war cause any more suffering. Lieutenant Astor was killed by a device left over from the war, so they feel responsible for Jeremy. But Picard, Troy, Wesley, and Worf help Jeremy come to grips with his anger and grief. The alien observes this and recognizes that it's better to let the humans care for him, and so the alien leaves. Afterwards, Jeremy and Worf, who led the away mission on which Lieutenant Astor was killed, perform a Klingon bonding ritual to unite their families and make them brothers, so Jeremy is now Worf's legal brother who we never see again. The end. (laughs) I didn't note that as well. Uh, so this was Ronald D. Moore's first writing job on Star mm-hmm. Trek. So Ronald D. Moore ended up becoming uh, a major writer, contributor to DS9. And one of the best writers in the Star Trek writing stable. Yep. And then went on to create the Battlestar Galactica, the reboot in the early 2000s, and For All Mankind, which is on Apple TV Plus now, and a, a bunch of great shows. He also was briefly a writer in Star Trek Voyager, but he had the... He had disagreements because he wanted to make the writing on Voyager good. <laughs> they didn't want that. So, yeah. so uh, now um, you could tell this is early Ronald E. Moore because yeah. I don't think this is a, the best possible script. But Yeah. It, it does, though, set up one of the things that he became known for, which is Klingon culture. Yeah. Um, he, he wrote tons of Klingon stories that, built the modern Klingon mythology and and it forms an element of this one although not a very big element yeah especially given that the title is the bonding which yeah, you, refers you'd, to that you'd think that would be front and center 
Um, and the way they set it up, you know, immediately after Lieutenant Astor has died, Worf wants to do the bonding with Jeremy, and Troy is like, maybe someday, but he's going to need to work through some stuff first. And then Worf vanishes for mm. the entire middle of the episode. He's just not in it. And then they bring him back at the very end for the resolution and they do the bonding. But it's surprisingly, there is very little about the bonding in this episode. Right, right. Yeah, it's odd. I mean, I don't know, maybe they're trying to allude to what the alien energy being is trying to do as also a kind of bonding or something. Yeah, um, they could have should have called it creepy space mom or something. <laughs> it would have been more yeah. accurate. You know, Star Trek has a lot of these stories with, throughout all the series of um, aliens trying to make up for some bad result by creating an illusion for the humans or the, the Starfleet people to live in. I mean, we, mm -hmm. start, we got it with the very first one, which was the cage. Mm -hmm. and, and this happens over and over and over again. It's, they keep going back to that one. And I'm kind of curious, what is it about that kind of story that the writers want to explore it's a way of portraying aliens as something other than hostile enemies who need to be shot <laughs> okay <laughs> i suppose i mean this is also maybe a little bit of the idea of you know we have to live in reality and not comforting yeah. fiction and illusion oh, man is meant for facing brutal reality is another recurring trope on this show as well as aliens can be our friends and just they're just different you know, we had that TNG story a while ago with the uh, alien on the planet that had been devastated except for this little patch of land mm -hmm. where the guy was living with uh, his wife, which was another example of an alien creating this environment. And yeah. And it's another Solaris style story. For people who may not be aware, Solaris was a novel that was written by the Polish science fiction writer Stanislaw Lem that involves an alien giving a man the illusion of his dead wife. Right, And this has been – it, it was made into a movie in 1972. They did a remake a few years ago as well. But um, anytime I see a, oh, alien is impersonating a dead person to make someone happy, well, welcome to Solaris. <laughs> right. Did Solaris predate the cage? I uh, don't know if the novel did. Mm, interesting. But the aliens in that aren't impersonating a dead person but they are making a, a, a wounded person look better that's true that's true now one of the things that this episode does do is it really brings home the reality of death among the crew mm -hmm. Mar marla astor is not some nameless you know red shirt who dies off screen and everyone sort of forgets her, her yeah. death has an impact it does. It would have been better if they'd introduced her and Jeremy a, a few stories earlier and let us get to know them. And then wham, she's dead. Oh, yeah. That would have that would have much more emotional impact. Um, and and I I seem to recall that ha does happen later on, maybe in DS9 that they or mm -hmm. certainly in Voyager, we have crew members who die that we've yeah. gotten to know. So. Yeah. yeah, and this is something that they just weren't into serialized storytelling. They would do something like that now. Mm -hmm. They'd bring in a character, build them up for a few episodes, and then pull the trigger. Um, but they weren't into serialized storytelling then. And Ronald E. Moore commented on that uh, because that's why we never see Jeremy again. Yeah. Even though there's so many complications with Worf and his my big fat Klingon family. 
that, you know, <laughs> right. is always getting into trouble in one way or another. We know all, we know Worf's family better than we know anybody else's. And, um, and yet we never see Jeremy again because this is third season TNG where they weren't doing ongoing storytelling. You know, even like today, if they have a bring back Star Trek legacy and make, you know, that they've talked about mm -hmm. and they make Worf part of that. Yeah, they should be bring back Jeremy. That would be an interesting, after all this time, to bring back Jeremy would be interesting. You could create some interesting drama. Um, I made a note, by the way, at the end of the episode, after they have their little ceremony, I wrote, and now Grogu is part of Din Djarin's family, <laughs> which is which was basically part of the plot of The Mandalorian, uh, uh -huh. is how he ad adopts the foundling Grogu. Uh, mm -hmm. So Jeremy is sort of a, a proto-Grogu, although not nearly as cute. Uh, I mean, Jeremy's a cute kid, but he's not nearly as cute. He does have the big ears. <laughs> he does. He does. You know, another aspect of this is the idea, like Picard brings up with, with Troy, this is why we shouldn't be carrying children on starships. It's too going, risky. You are right. You shouldn't. But on the other hand, I'm not sure, like, I, I get he has to think about the, having kids on board, but it wouldn't have prevented his mother from dying. It would only Correct. have prevented Picard from having to tell jeremy about it so really the complaint is i don't i wouldn't have to do this awful thing that i have to i'm about to do which is tell him about his mother's death and troy points that out to picard that she would have died anyway and someone else would ended up telling jeremy but picard is right because this is it this is a dangerous situation it's not just people who beam down on missions that get killed mm -hmm. we have borg cutting up sections of the ship and extracting people and we have warp core breaches and we have yep. romulans firing at a vessel with children on board what is up with that i mean this is what we this is the whole in, inception of ds9 right with the the saratoga and and you know and captain uh, cisco and jennifer his wife dying in that so mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, that's true. You know, it, it it is interesting. There was a time in this in the age of sail when, when we had you know, sailing ships where mo not in warships, but mostly in uh, like whaling vessels, captains would would have the privilege of bringing their wife and children sometimes on the on these trips. Mm -hmm. And, you know, these are <laughs> being away. From, I, I get it. You're away from port for perhaps a year at a time. And dude, you don't want to be away from your family. But gosh, I mean, that's a risk you're taking a big yeah. one. So. Yeah. Yeah. At, at least whaling vessels were not warships. Right, right. They. I, mean, yeah, I they, don't have a problem in Federation trading lanes if they want to have families on civilian freighters. That's not a problem. But this is an exploration vessel that re encounters danger every week. <laughs> exactly. It's in, almost destroyed pretty much on a regular basis. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, if I were a crewman with my family aboard, after that first encounter, I'm like, uh, when's the next stop? We can get them off and send them mm -hmm. someplace safe. <laughs> this was a bad idea. Um, it, so one one thing we didn't do was overall impressions of this episode. Sure. And my impression of this episode was it was better than I remember. Mm -hmm. I kind of sighed when last week when you said, and next week we're going to be doing the bonding. And it's like, oh, great, because my memories of this episode were not good. But in watching it, I actually liked it better than I thought I would. Um, it's not as good as Ron Moore will later be, and apparently is not as good as the script. He, it's, it's, it, his original script was not even as good as this because it got rewritten, and Ron Moore said that the rewritten version they filmed was better substantially than his original. Um, also, originally, it wasn't an alien 
impersonating yeah. Marla Astor. It it was Jeremy recreating her on the holodeck. And there was a big fight behind the scenes on this because Gene Roddenberry's vision of 24th century man, everyone is perfect and even small children will be fine with their parents dying. And and Michael Piller, the who was effectively the showrunner, said, okay, let's figure out how we can take that concept on board and make it work. You know, even if other kids are okay with death and their parents dying, which is ridiculous. What if this kid isn't? And what if this strange thing happens? And, you know, how can we make it work? And they made it work. Um, it's a reasonable story. Nobody comes across as, as their idiot policies in this episode, like having kids on board, but no character comes across as an idiot in this, not even the alien, the alien in basically during the resolution, the alien doesn't say anything. The alien is sitting back and watching the humans deal with the situation and eventually realizes that that the uh, humans know how to care for their own better than she does. And so the alien, without saying anything, gets up and basically waves goodbye and vanishes. And that's a nicely, subtly done thing. Um, Now, there's a plot hole in that the alien is able to reach into Jeremy's memory and recreate their home back on Earth, including the cat who the simulacrum cat even knows Jeremy and acts just like the original cat is. And she's pulling all this information to, she's pulled an exact image of Marla Astor and her voice out of Jeremy's memory. Okay. If you're this telepathic, you should under, understand human death psychology. I would uh-huh. say there's a possible explanation, which is he was watching the video mm-hmm. immediately uh, prior. Okay. He could have pulled it from the video file. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, but, but it, I get it, your point. It, yeah. She speaks English fluently, and she yeah. got that telepathically. That's true. It's because they didn't have all of English in those short video clips. <laughs> right, it, right. They weren't even watching Yakko Warner's All the Words in the English Language. <laughs> so there's a bit of a plot hole, but if you let that pass, that she's got some kind of psychic block against that or something, the alien comes across as reasonable. You know, at one point, the alien says to Troy, I'm trying to understand your resistance, you know, which is which is good. Mm -hmm. It shows the alien is, you know, just like they're trying to understand the alien. The alien is trying to understand them. And and we're not it's like I'm not resorting to violence. I'm trying to understand. And that's that's good. Also, this episode is good in that bunches of minor characters get stuff to do. That's meaningful. I mean, you have a little bit of data and Riker processing Lieutenant mm-hmm. Astor's death emotionally, but much more prominently, Wesley, Troy, and Worf are mm-hmm. central to this thing. Troy, who's normally a doorknob in terms of the plot, yeah. is absolutely central and makes valuable contributions. She is, in fact, she gets to do something I don't ever recall her doing elsewhere, which is as they're talking to the away team down on the planet, just before the explosion that kills Marl Aster, Troy suddenly says, beam them up. And because she sensed what's going on on the planet. And yeah, if you're in empathic contact with people down there and they're in sudden distress, that's exactly the kind of thing Troy would blurt out. 
And so I liked seeing her use her empathic abilities that way. She is she is helping Worf understand and ma- navigate his desires. She's helping Jeremy navigate and understand his emotions. She's helping, she gets Beverly to talk to Wesley about, because the same thing happened to Wesley when Picard had to break the news that, um, that Jack Crusher was dead. He had to break that news to Wesley. And yeah. so it's like, Wes, maybe it would be good for Wesley to talk with Jeremy. And then Wesley and Worf and Jeremy and Troy are all there playing their part in the resolution. And it's like, it's nice to get to see these often lesser characters actually making a positive contribution. I think this Troy is better than any first season uh, Deanna Troy. I mean, oh, sure. this is this is her she actually gets meaningful things to do instead of just feeling what some uh, alien is feeling mm-hmm. and 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 sensing that they're lying. I mean, this this is she's it, actually doing and, counselor things. Yeah, and and it's and by the way, lying is not an emotion. I yeah. sense considerable deception on his part. Deception is not an emotion. That's not how that would work. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, I, I did like that. Um, e- e- the The child actor who plays Jeremy is mm-hmm. is okay. I mean, yeah. it's a lot to ask of a child actor to deal with. You know, a, okay, your parent has died, and now you're going to have to pretend that she's back and be confused by it. I mean, that's a lot to ask for any child actor. It is, and, you know, child actors are, are notoriously bad. On shows, and yeah. this one has the advantage that um, he's he's repressing his anger. So most of the time, he just gets to be silent, yeah. or maybe he gets to smile at watching a, a family home video. Um, but he doesn't have to do a lot of acting, and that helps. The, uh, the there's a couple of I think missteps in the in the writing a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. The idea that after having told this poor child that he's an orphan and that he's all alone in the universe now, although mm-hmm. the, no one's alone in this enterprise. Um, oh, I know. They, I hated, they leave I hated him alone that. in his quarters. Yeah. <laughs> like, why would you, you wouldn't leave this poor child alone in his quarters after having dropped this bomb on him? You would, yeah. you would put him with a surrogate family or something. I, I hate Picard's cliched line where after Jeremy says, I'm all alone, Picard says, Jeremy... On the Starship Enterprise, no one is ever alone. Now here's your quarters. No, no one. <laughs> That's why we're going to leave you alone now. <laughs> exactly. Uh. That was that was weird. That was. <laughs> But of course, they need him to be alone in order for the alien to show up. I guess. Yeah. I mean, that's the sort of thing. And that's a genuinely creepy moment where yes. he's he's watching a home vid and his mom is wearing a certain like pink and maroon outfit in the in the vid, and and then. We see out of focus in the background a woman wearing the same pink and maroon outfit <laughs> step out from behind a, from behind you know part of a wall and smile, and it's like, <laughs> wow, that's creepy. Oh, a haunting on the yeah. Enterprise. <laughs> um, the, uh, the so you you did reference that this this interesting conversation between Data and Riker about the question. Why do people ask how well you knew the deceased? And that's a that's actually an interesting question. Like, did you know him very well? I, I've never encountered that personally. I mean, I can imagine people doing it, but I, I've I've like no one ever asked me how well did you know your wife? No, it's uh, usually pretty for, darn well. Yeah, no, no, it's usually for people that are sort of tangential. Like, 
Yeah. Like if someone you worked with in the same building died, then, you know, people because this this has happened to me in real life. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I had someone who I worked with who uh, who, who passed away suddenly. And as the, you know, my co- co-workers and I would gather like, how, how well did you know him? And and, and we, we we sort of have this need to. I don't know. Like, Establish like, placement in a social in a net in a matrix of social relationships. Yes. The reason that I would suspect people ask how well did you know him, other than being a conversation starter, so we let's now we can give us permission to talk about this difficult subject, um, is also to figure out how much pain are you likely in? You yes. Know, do I need to be concerned about you? Because if you knew the person well, I'd expect you to be in more pain than if you didn't actually know them. And Riker kind of makes the point related to that, which is like maybe if we felt the loss of any life as keenly as we felt the death of someone close to us, we'd be a lot like human history would be a lot less bloody is what he says. Maybe. Um, the So data the, – the, question that data asks that sets up that response is why should people's feelings of loss depend on who is lost and how that person is related to us and because he himself notices i'm not as broken up about this as i was when tasha died and there's a very simple reason for that it's to our benefit uh we need to feel the loss of those closest to us because they are the ones that we most benefit from. There's, this is simple evolution. Um, the people that are in our families and our social groups will help us survive and, re- and thrive and reproduce. They are of the most benefit to us compared to people who live on the other side of the world that are killed by a tsunami. It's the ones that are close that actually help us make it through life, and therefore we need to care more about them. We need to help them so they will help us in return. Whereas people who are on the other side of the world and die and we maybe hear about it on the news, they they weren't benefiting us and we weren't benefiting them. We don't have the same kind of benefit relationship. So, yes, it is tragic that they die, and we should care about that, and we should pray for them, but not with the same intensity as the people that actually help us in life and the people that we need to help in life. Right. With someone close to you, there's also this, not even just like what they provide to me, but also the um, the demand on me to protect, you know, that, mm-hmm. that idea that I, I, I need to protect them as well. And I was unable to some fashion to save them in this case. And that, I think that also, and you just, I think there's a limit to the human capacity for yeah. feeling this way for people. We'd be, we'd be, we would be paralyzed. paralyzed. Yeah. yeah. It, it, there, we have limited resources and that includes time, attention, and ability to grieve. And therefore we need to allocate those resources to the areas that have the most practical benefit. Mm-hmm. And that include we need to feel the loss of the people that are closest to us so that we are motivated to avoid such losses. And so that we are motivated to find replacements, and so we will be helped in getting through life. And there's just a whole yeah. bunch of reasons there, but they're practical. Yeah, I mean, the the fact is, is no matter even if there's no violence in the world, people will still die. And so mm-hmm. to, to feel the the death of every single person who dies, which is inevitable, uh, like like we would the closest person would, 
we would all be incapable of of continuing on yeah. beyond that grief. And if we cared about family members and other loved ones as little as the flip side of that is, if we cared about family members and others close to us as little as we care about people we've never heard of until they die and we hear about it on the news, we wouldn't be motivated to save our family members from death. Right. Right. Exactly. So the way the way it works now is the is you know it, it's it's the I don't know if I want to use ideal, but it's the way that works. So put it that way. It's the way our species is designed. Yes, and so, it makes sense. Yeah. So uh, another emotion is anger, and Worf's anger is natural to his species. Apparently, uh, you know Klingons, um, and he, he says in his discussion with Troy. Um, I cannot seek revenge against an enemy who turned to dust centuries ago. Her death was senseless, the last victim of a forgotten war. And he's very angry about this. And I'm thinking, why is Worf why, so— why, She died on duty. Why aren't you celebrating that she's gone to Stovokor? Right. And has he never lost someone before? I mean, he's the head of security. I'm going to guess security officers under his command, at least in the past three seasons, have died. Mm-hmm. You know, So they've they've kind of— built this up and is it because she wasn't a warrior but she was just an archaeologist and that's different I, somehow i think it's inconsistent writing there because he should be and he even brings this up later to jeremy that it's every klingon's dream to die on duty like she did and i so i think it's i think it's a flaw in the writing that they did they're they're looking for a way to get Worf motivated so that he's in the same kind of situation as jeremy and and the easy way to do that is, oh, Worf, he's a Klingon. He's going to be angry about this. And they haven't really thought it through fully. So they're trying to give him something other than she died a, a dishonorable death. Because she clearly didn't die a dishonorable death. She was doing her duty to the last moment. So he needs to be mad about something else. And so they turn his enemy, his anger, on the enemy that he can't fight because the enemy is already dead, whoever left the bomb that killed her. So uh, another important aspect of this story is uh, the role of surrogate families mm-hmm. and the bonds between people who have experienced loss. We mentioned Worf and uh, Wesley, uh, who both have suffered losses in um, highlighting the uh, importance of finding a sense of belonging and connection and and so the, uh, the, I think a key theme is how the crew of the Enterprise is like an extended family for to those in need. I mean, I think that's really one of the the, the things they're trying to call out here. Mm-hmm. Although uh, the other thing that kind of gets me is Worf is kind of imposing his culture on Jeremy in an mm-hmm. effort to salve his own conscience. Mm-hmm. Um and it, I don't know if that's unintentional or intentional on the part of the writing. What do you think? I don't know that they're thinking of it in terms of him imposing his culture. They don't treat it like it's a bad thing for him to have this ritual with Jeremy. They just are, it's like, dude, take it slow. You're being a little too fast on this. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I guess so. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, I think it's a, it's trying to show a way that, how Worf is trying to extend, mm-hmm. you know, um, as best he can as a Klingon, extend um, some healing, an yeah. offer of healing and bonding. And yeah. and Troy is in the situation of she she recognizes and values 
both what's going on with Worf and what's going on with Jeremy, and she's trying to find a way to harmonize those two. Um, because she recognizes Jeremy is a human. He has different sensibilities. If you, he's going to be mad at you. And, and, and if you try to do this now before he deals with his anger, it's going to, he's, it's going to blow up in your face. Right. Right. Which we then get a little bit of at the end. Yeah. Um, is, is that release. You mentioned earlier that how the alien doesn't understand why we make distinctions between reality and illusion, which makes sense for an energy being because for them you know someone who who can create reality from you know from their mind um there is no difference so uh, i think that was an interesting uh, aspect to this and so it it it, it asks i think it's the the creature asks what um what's so noble about sorrow why should mm-hmm. why why should we be allowed to feel sorrow and not just you know skip it and go right to joy um and uh, and we're, we're, it's a, you know, we're at, it is at the heart of our nature to feel pain and joy. It's an yeah, essential part of it, what makes us what we are. I think it's, that's it's, Picard. It, Picard says that, and yeah. it's it's like okay, thank you for putting a wallpaper over the real philosophical question. <laughs> right, but they need me there to explain evolutionary psychology to them. But <laughs> <laughs> um, I do like when the alien shows up, you know, and Jeremy first sees her and he's like, mom. And, and he's trying to grapple with the fact that she's dead. And she says, there was a mistake. It's okay. And she doesn't try to explain it any more than that. She just says, there was a mistake and it's all okay now. And it's like, that's so good as a lie. It's simple enough that it's it's like almost believable, you know. Uh, he, he if she needed to, she could spend some story about you know they had my body in sick bay and then they detected a faint sign of life and then they brought me back and they healed me and it was all a mistake. But he, without going into all that, it's just it was a mistake. Okay, great, you're alive. Let's have pizza now. Right. Um, I also liked when Worf comes in to the quarters and sees her with Jeremy, he immediately gets on the comm badge and tells the bridge, Lieutenant Astor is in her quarters. And I, <laughs> I is like spoken like a true parapsychologist <laughs> because in parapsychology, when you're dealing with, you know, a, a, an apparition of a ghost or something, you, you, just frequently describe it, or if someone's having any kind of paranormal experience, you frequently describe the experience based on how it appears without passing judgment on, is this real or not? So you're not assuming, like if you say, so-and-so has visions of aliens contacting them and telling them about the future, that doesn't mean you believe their visions are true. It just means you're reporting what they are reporting. You're reporting mm. their experience. And then the question of is it what is it that's really going on here is a separate question that requires investigation. And you frequently want to speak as prior to investigation, you want to speak of the experience as if it were real to enable the person describing the experience to keep talking to you and giving you the information you need to make a judgment. Because if you are instantly skeptical of what they're telling you, they're going to shut down. 
and and right. you're never you're never going to get to the truth. It's going to make things worse, and that's exactly without it being in a parapsychological context. That's exactly what Worf is doing here. He's reporting the appearance of the experience. Lieutenant Astor is in her quarters with Jeremy. And part of why he's doing that is he doesn't want to make the situation worse by immediately challenging her identity in front of Jeremy, who has just been reunited with his mom. You want to let him go with his experience and we can work on is it true or not and how to present that to Jeremy as we go down the line. And this, this very much reflects what happens in parapsychological field investigations. You don't immediately challenge everything the person has said. You accept it, and then you start processing it and helping the client understand, is it real or not? Meanwhile, on the bridge, as soon as they hear Lieutenant Astra's in her quarters with Jeremy, they know something is very wrong. Yes. <laughs> and they can start to mobilize themselves to, to deal with it. Although yeah. Picard doesn't do what he should have done, which is, as the captain, first contact is his responsibility. Yeah. You know there's an alien on board that you've never encountered before. Go down there and make first contact now. Right, right, exactly. Or send the XO, but, you know, that's like mm-hmm. one of you should be there. Um, yeah. So um, you, in the resolution, we're told you can't live in memory. You must come to terms with your grief, which is a solid mm-hmm. psychological yeah. uh, advice. Um, our time in this universe is finite. We must come to grips with it, which is another, you know, you have to understand that death is, an, is a part of life. Sure. That's also solid. Um, was Troy correct to assume like she it turned out she was correct, but was she, should she have assumed that Jeremy was mad at Worf? Was it inevitable that Jeremy should be mad? It's it's reasonable for her to ask the question, and especially so since she can see what the audience can't, which is that Jeremy is holding in a lot of anger. Sure. She may even be able to sense who it's directed at. Like Worf walks into the room, he gets more angry. Um, so it's not unreasonable to me either that she would ask the question or that she would have these perceptions. I just, I just think the line where she, they, they've had Wesley admit that he, when Captain Picard told him that Jack Crusher was dead, he was, he was mad at Captain Picard Mm. for having led that mission. And why are you alive? And my dad is dead. And, but he says, now I'm not, I'm not even mad at you a little bit. I'm over that. And right. so this is a very helpful thing. It, it gives Will Wheaton a chance to do some good acting for once, you know, and play a much better role in the story than is normal for Wesley. And it's reasonable to then transition to, so Jeremy, how do you feel? Um, but I think the line is a little bit ham-fisted. Is like, so Jeremy, are you mad at war? If I forget exactly how Troy phrases it, mm-hmm. but I remember it not being my favorite line. You know, so uh, one of the things that Troy says to convince the entity to to let Jeremy be is, is like, you know, are now once he's on the surface living oh, with you. I, actually, the line is, Jeremy, you must be very angry at Lieutenant Ward. Oh, yes. So and she's that's a too definite. Right. And also leading. I mean, yeah. are you angry? That would be less leading. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was going to say the, the, the thing that she convinces was like she points out once you're on the surface – what are you going to do? You know, he's, he, you're going to provide him with a fulfilling career. You're going to give him a family and, you know, all, all these things that you're going to need, which called to mind for me a story we did a while back uh, mm-hmm. on, for, from Enterprise Oasis, which was a similar question, which is, you know, a young woman living 
in an illusion, constructed illusion, and and yeah. demanding of her father. Are you going? Are you going to provide family for her? Are you going to provide a career and life? And what happens if she gets sick or injured, mm-hmm. and that sort of thing? So again, it's one of those things where they, they, they these the the story element keeps coming back. You can't live in an illusion. Um, you know, the, you've got to live in reality. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so that's all I have on this one, Jimmy. Did you have any other notes? Um, I liked some of the dialogue. Like there's a moment where Troy is counseling Jeremy with the alien present. And by the way, notice the alien never gets a name. Right. She's just Marla Astor or something. And she seems to not even be the same as the other energy beings. She speaks on their behalf, but it seems like she's a construct of some kind that is not necess- doesn't seem to actually be a full member of their species. Mm. Um, but at one point, Troy is talking with Jeremy and, and she says, it's time for this to end. And Marla Astor interjects with Jeremy, I'm never going to leave you again. And so they both stake their position. It's time for this to end. I'm never going to leave you again. And then Troy says, I won't trick you or lie to you. (laughs) <laughs> which is what Marla Astor has just been doing. Right. And I thought that's a really great line. I won't trick you or lie to you because she's just been doing that. And therefore you shouldn't trust her. Um, so I like that. You know, as someone who has my own memories of loss, uh, I liked Picard's line of you're offering him a memory, something to cherish, but not to live in. I thought that was constructive. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought the dialogue with um, with Will Wheaton and Patrick uh, uh, Stewart was 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 good. Um, where they talk about there's some of Picard's lines were a little ham fisted, but but on the on the whole it was good. You know they ask they ask uh, Wesley how did you feel when Captain Picard told you this, and he said like someone had kicked me in the head, and Picard says someone. And he's he's leading there, and yeah. Wesley says, "I was angry at you." And um, and actually, for someone in Wesley's position on the ship, that's a pretty big admission. Yeah, um, if you're you're not even an official ensign yet, and you're hoping to be, and you're telling the captain you were super angry at him for a long time. I also liked the reasoning process that they go through in trying to, and it, it crops up in dialogue in subtle ways in this episode, but as as Jeremy's trying to process, is this really my mom or not? You know, Troy is saying to him as they're walking down the corridor, that is not your mom. And he's like, I touched her. And so, you know, because she had held hands with his mother, he felt she was real. He felt she was warm. She had flexible human skin and tissue. And so that I touched her line, you know, she wasn't just an illusion. That That's that's good, although it means less in the age of holodecks. But, but I like that because he's thinking through what could this be. And he's eliminated the possibility that it's a hallucination or a telepathic image or something like that. He's actually felt her. Also, when he picks up his cat that mom has just wished up he's he interacts with the cat and says he knows me and that's something that also would be a sign of veridicality if the cat actually responds to you like it knows you instead of 
who is this random stranger picking me up? But then Troy helps with the reasoning process and says, uh, so Jeremy, could your mom just wish all this stuff up? And it's like, yeah, mom really couldn't do that. So I right. like the way they think through the issue on the show. Mm. The, the, you reminded me, the, when talking about Wesley and Picard, uh, reminded me of something, when we, the, the whole Roddenberry thing about kids in the 23rd century would mm-hmm. be able to deal with death. I feel like in some of that dialogue, they were kind of pushing back on Roddenberry's mm-hmm. assertion in this, where, you know, um, Wesley says, my parents taught me about the dangers of Starfleet missions. I knew what could happen. And Picard says, so you were prepared? And Wesley says, no, I wasn't prepared at all. How could anyone mm-hmm. be prepared to hear that a person's a parent's never coming home again? So I, I yeah. feel like that was a a clear pushback on Roddenberry. Yeah, uh, there, I think I think that there's an element of that because a lot of the writers, I mean, Pillar insisted we're going to take this on board and make it work. But I think the writers weren't as fully on board with that idea because it's stupid. Yeah. I don't, kids are never going to be okay hearing their parents have died. That's ridiculous. That makes no sense in right. evolutionary terms. Yeah. Um, I mean, Frankly, just pulling, yeah. pulling God and love and all that out of it. If you just think about it in terms of evolution, this would make no sense. And right. So, so yeah. So even yeah. if, even Mr. Gene Roddenberry, if you don't believe in God, listen to the science. You know, <laughs> it does make me question Roddenberry's, you know, uh, vision on some of these things. Weird, yeah. weird, unscientific utopia. Yeah. yeah. By the way, one another subtle thing they did in this episode. So they, you know, it was like some kind of subspace mine that killed Marla Astor. That was mm-hmm. because it was involved subspace. It was something an ordinary tricorder would not detect, which is their explanation for why the magic didn't work in this episode. But uh, they later find, like, a bunch more of these mines that have all been dug up and deactivated. Yeah. And they, they never follow up on that. But the implication is, the what we're meant to understand is the aliens, the energy beings that were not party to the war, have now realized, oh, we're going to have people here and these things are a threat. We better yank them out of the ground and defuse them now so this doesn't happen to anybody else. Right. And they they never make that explicit. So I like how it's in there and it makes sense, but they don't feel the need to connect the dots for us in an obvious way. Right, right. That was good. That was good. So I think that about does it for the bonding. And uh, we'll wrap things up there. We'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Star Trek, including Stuart J., William C., Jeremy S., Joanne M., and Christine G., their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue the secrets of Star Trek and all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. And we'd also like to thank Victor Lambs, who edited this episode. This StarQuest show is brought to you in part by Sam Castry Law, LLC, focusing on business and entertainment law in the greater Chicagoland area and intellectual property law across the U.S. Learn more by visiting castrelaw.com, C-A-S-T-R-E-E-Law.com. Licensed to practice in Illinois and before the United States Trademark Office. So that's it from us. What did you think of this TNG episode, The Bonding? Let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com slash trek or our Facebook page, facebook.com slash starquestmedia. Send an email to trek at sqpn.com or visit our Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord. 
You can watch The Secrets of Star Trek on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash starquestmedia. And we'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the Deep Space Nine episode, Rejoined. Until then, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for joining me and sharing The Secrets of Star Trek. Thank you, and live long and prosper. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to The Secrets of Star Trek on StarQuest. And remember, on the Starship Enterprise, no one is alone unless you're sent to your quarters after your mom died. Bye.